How do you show someone that you care about them? Think about that. How do you show someone that you care about them? Or put it another way, how do you expect others to show you that they care? Perhaps the most obvious answer is the words that we use, the things that we say to each other. When you're suffering a loss, for example, when someone comes and they share sympathies with you and they speak to you, they bring comfort. They show you that they care as well. What about when you're celebrating? If you say happy birthday to someone, it does show a measure of interest in their circumstances, doesn't it? For the bare minimum, it shows that you're acknowledging them and something that's important in their lives. But how about actions as another way of demonstrating we care? Because don't we say that actions speak louder than words? We say that, don't we? Actions, you might say, actually, are the ultimate way of showing someone else that you care. Now think about if you flip that upside down. When we observe inactivity, nothing happening, nothing going on, isn't it fair, isn't it right that we conclude that the person who is doing nothing at all doesn't care? If you've suffered a loss, someone avoids you, doesn't come and say sorry for your loss. If it is your birthday, someone doesn't send you a card or buy you a gift, it's fair, it's right to conclude that they don't care about your circumstances or you. When there's no present, when there's no card, when there's no surprise birthday party, no hug, no hot meal, we quickly and usually accurately surmise that there's little to no concern going on, don't we? Have you ever been in a circumstance, perhaps you find yourself in a circumstance like this right now, where the thought has crossed your mind? God, you're not doing anything. Do you even care? Not, why, God, are you doing X? I don't like why. I wish you weren't up to that particular thing. But you sense in your life, in the world around you, God and his inactivity. The pressure cooker is building in some sort of situation. The temperature is rising. And you, God, you, God, seem to be up to nothing. And you ask the question then, well, God, don't you even care about what's going on? Perhaps you're asking that very personal question at the moment. We can actually ask it in a far more impersonal sort of way, uh, but I think just as significantly when we hear stories of things that are happening in the lives of our friends, our family, in our towns, in our nation, when we turn on the news and we, and we hear stories of tragedy globally, we can sit there at a slight distance and still reflect that same question, can't we? God, don't you care about any of this that seems to be going on around me? And in our minds, we are solving a really simple logic puzzle. Think about it. Surely, if God cared, he'd act in this situation, because that's how you demonstrate care. If he cared at all, we'd see him move, but all we can observe is inactivity, 
So the obvious answer to our own question is, God doesn't care. Actually, for some people, and this might be one of us gathered here, it might be somebody online or on the phone, who knows? That, that sort of situation, that sort of thinking leads us to go one step further. We don't just surmise that God doesn't care, but it makes us get the rubber out and erase God from history altogether. If he's not active, then that doesn't simply mean he doesn't care. It means he doesn't exist. My assumption is that we're all on a spectrum here this morning. A spectrum as we kind of react and relate to that question. Some of us will be asking it from a deeply personal point of view. Others from a more detached point of view. Still others will have gone to the full conclusion that God isn't anything to be interacted with at all. And if you're anywhere on that spectrum, then let me say this morning, you're welcome. Hello. You're not alone. Those sorts of thoughts, some people might call them doubts, those sorts of questions are totally and utterly normal. They're totally and utterly relatable. Sometimes we can be afraid to voice those sorts of feelings because we're not entirely sure how other people will react to us. But let me reassure you, those are emotions that simply make sense in the situations we very often find ourselves in. And I don't just mean here, now, today. I mean throughout history. Because people have always wrestled with the, the question of God and his, I'm going to use air quotes, inactivity. Astoundingly, we find in the scriptures that even people who walked with, who talked with, who ate with, who drank with Jesus asked that exact question. I don't know if you picked it out when Andrew read to us. One of the things I've loved over the last 12 months uh, has been a, a bit of a hobby of mine, is to come to the Gospels and to find times when people specifically question Jesus and um, kind of invade that conversation that happens. They ask Jesus a question, Jesus gives them a, a response, and, and, and we get to come and eavesdrop on those conversations. We get to come and to listen to their questions, which might very well map onto questions we have, and listen to the answer that he gives to them. And that's exactly what we have in Mark chapter 4. It's a really famous story for anyone who spent any sort of time in church. It's the sort of story that would fit well in a story time, isn't it? With, with all the imagery, with all the things that are going on all around. Um, and very often we're distracted by the miracle that ends up taking place. But I think it's a wonderful story because it's a story of people asking the exact sort of question that we ask. You'll see in the story, I'm going to read it again, there's this perceived inactivity of Jesus. And it causes that response. Jesus, you're not doing anything. Don't you care? It's fascinating. Like when you stop and you think about it, these, these people who have been with Jesus, who have seen Jesus, who love Jesus, who on any other day are very confident in Jesus' care and concern for them, they question whether he's interested at all. At all. 
And so this morning, we're going to listen to Jesus's answer to their question and see if it's an answer for our own as well. Let me just read it quickly once more. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's go over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and they took him along since he was in the boat. And the boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping, sleeping on a cushion. So they woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up. He rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased. There was this great calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now actually they're terrified and they ask one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I've assumed this morning that we can all relate to that question or that sense, that feeling of inactivity prompting us to ask the question, does somebody care? I'm also going to assume or hope at least, that none of us have ever been in this particular situation. Um, that nobody watching on the live stream has been in a boat and has been genuinely fearful for their lives. A few perhaps have been in rough waters, crossing the channel or heading over to Ireland, um, but no one's ever been in that situation of genuinely thinking the ship is going to go down. And yet we can relate to their fear, can't we? We can relate to the terror that grips them here. They're not people who are in an uncomfortable situation, are they? They are fearing for their very lives. We can imagine the, the wind howling. We can hear almost the waves crashing and the boat rocking and groaning. But step into their shoes for a moment there's nothing to worry about, is there? They've got someone with them who is pretty special indeed in that boat. Someone, if you've been reading Mark up until this point, I take it that you haven't, but that's fine, I'll fill you in. Someone that they've already witnessed deal definitively with disease and sickness. People who have been seriously ill, Jesus has sorted it out. They've got someone pretty special who they've already witnessed, dismissed, disobedient, demonic beings. Just like that. Gone. Real, amazing, astounding power. Someone in the boat with them who they've already witnessed stare down spiritual death and in its place offer forgiveness and life. That's who they've got in the boat with them. As the waves crash as the wood creaks and groans under the pressure, as the level of water in that vessel begins to rise. Someone pretty special indeed. He's the same one who himself invited them to follow him. Come, come with me, follow me. Go where I go. Be with me night and day. And not just follow him on some madcap adventures, but follow him, he would say, into full life, abundant life. Come, follow me, be with me, and truly live. So the storm is scary, yes, 
But you've got to imagine that when the, the lightning bolt started flashing, when the thunder started tearing through the air, to begin with at least, they thought to themselves, this is okay. We're traveling with Jesus and that makes all the difference. Except, at this particular time, it doesn't seem to be making any difference at all. It doesn't seem to be making the slightest bit of difference, does it? Because the wind is getting faster, more fierce. And with each crushing wave getting louder and louder, the Jesus who they have witnessed doing so much in the lives of so many people he's encountered, well, he's literally nowhere to be seen. When push is coming to shove, as we say, when the chips are finally down, when words, in effect, are worthless and his actions that are worth their weight in gold, when everything is totally and utterly out of control from the disciples' point of view, Jesus is sleeping. He's asleep at the wheel. You couldn't get a better picture of inactivity, could you? of someone who is not involved, of someone who is not doing anything, someone who apparently isn't concerned about the entire circumstances, let alone concerned about his comrades in those circumstances. If we wanted to get our heads together this morning and try and think of our own story, our own parable that was going to demonstrate to people a, a picture of someone who, who wasn't concerned, who was inactive, who wasn't involved in a situation, we wouldn't come up with a better picture than this, would we? Somebody fast asleep while the boat sinks. So whether we've been in that circumstance or not, we totally get their question. I hope we totally get their question. When they wake Jesus up, and we say, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that we're about to die? What are, you, what are you not doing? Why aren't you doing something? You're fast asleep. It's the sort of question that we have uttered in a thousand different circumstances. Lord God, don't you care just one tiny bit? Can I give you some examples of those circumstances that I have asked that question over the last 12 months? My best friend suffering from pancreatic cancer, his mother contracting the same cancer. She dies uh, November 2019. He ended up dying September 2020. In all that situation, praying together as a church, hoping with confidence that these are faith-filled people, that we will see them again one day, but desperately caring about their situations and their struggles and the struggles of the family and the struggles of those of us who are close to them. God, don't you care about what's going on here? Surely one cancer story in a family is enough, but not two and not two ending in death in less than 12 months. Don't you care? Well, my sister, who um, <laughs> surprised me, um, very soon after we were allowed to meet in gardens for the first time after the lockdown, and she announced that she was pregnant for the first time. Joy, wonderful news. Thrilled to bits for her, except at the 20-week scan when they find out that the baby is, doesn't have a diaphragm and so is 
developing in the womb and only has one lung or half a lung and the heart can't grow and all of this and that and the other. We're praying, the church is praying. She's got these regular scans and these regular appointments, every time hoping that the message is going to come back. Actually, the situation has changed. The hole wasn't as big as they thought. The lungs are doing better. This will be fine. That will be fine. The whole time asking the question, God, don't you care? Why aren't you doing anything? Or the life of the church over the last 12 months. Not just the place where I work as a pastor, but the people who I love and being separated from them not really being able to find out and knowing what is going on in their lives not really knowing whether when we start doing things like this whether we're going to reconnect or not what effect those 12 months are going to have had on us and what effect they will have ongoing as people are scared to leave their homes and to interact and to socialize and to be a part of the church family again and in all that situation just asking the question god don't you care what like I thought you loved the church at least as much as I do if not a heck of a lot more don't you care why aren't you doing anything I think it makes it all the more puzzling all the more concerning when we admit don't we that yes he does care when we see a situation and we think to ourselves of course you could do something you have the power you could definitely make a difference in this situation right now but their question isn't can you jesus do something about this the question was will you do something about this it's, uh, there's not a doubt in my mind that, that God is able to intervene when people have cancers, when babies are missing diaphragms, when churches are forced to meet apart over Zoom and things like that. It, it never crosses my mind that he can't. It never crosses the disciples' minds that Jesus can't do something in this situation. The question is, will you, or more accurately, more accurately why aren't you do you feel i'm laboring the point because i want us to feel the weight of this why why aren't you doing something don't you care well now we get to the part of the story where we hear jesus's response they question jesus don't you care that we're about to die and jesus says to them why are you afraid don't you don't you have any faith by the time he actually speaks those words um, to the disciples he has acted hasn't he that's that's usually what catches our attention in this story is that when he acts he he deals with the very thing that has caused them to ask these questions cause concern and filled them with dread but I'm not sure whether that response of Jesus on first glances is very satisfying to us. Why are you afraid, he says? Where is your faith? Because if you do the math, if you join the dots, apparently here Jesus' answer to the question of his 
inactivity in this dread-filling situation, his answer to them, and I'm going to say his answer to us, in times of testing and trying and terrifying situations and circumstances, his answer to us is, why don't you have any faith? When we come to him and say, why don't you care about X, Y, and Z situation? He says, well, why don't you have any faith? According to Jesus, the missing ingredient in the situation wasn't his activity, his action, his intervention, but the missing ingredient is the disciples' faith. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult one to wrestle with. That's a difficult one to get our heads around because I don't personally find that very satisfying. Not immediately, anyway. And I want to be satisfied. I want you to be satisfied with Jesus' answer this morning. You see, all too often, all too often, we can settle for an idea of faith that is nothing more than blind optimism. I think in our culture, in our society, that is basically what we think faith is. Faith is crossing our fingers, closing our eyes, and wishing for the best. Or, if we're not courageous enough to wish for the best, just to, just to hope that things turn out okay-ish, that they won't be awful and terrible. That's, that's kind of culturally, and, and I think sometimes in the church as well, that's what we can think of faith as. Just crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. And if that was the case, then Jesus' response to them is this. You've seen me doing nothing, and what you really needed to do was to close your eyes and kind of just hope things got better. What you really needed to do was to wish for the best. Blind optimism. The story, if, if that is the, the faith that Jesus is speaking about, then it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. But that idea of faith doesn't do justice to the word. It doesn't do justice to the situation that they found themselves in. It doesn't do justice to the faith that we're called to have. If that's what we think faith is, then the first thing we need to do is chuck that out. Chuck that into the stormy sea. Faith. Do you still have no faith? Wonderfully, later on in the New Testament, one of Jesus' followers in a moment of sublime clarity Takes, takes the plunge and decides to define what faith really is. You can find it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and this is how they define faith. Faith is assurance or confidence in what we hope for. Confidence about what we do not see. That's what they say faith is. Not blind optimism, not crossing our fingers and hoping for the best, but having confidence even in things that we do not see. I wonder if that makes it any better for us, if that makes it any clearer for us. I think, again, on the surface of it, perhaps it doesn't. Hang on a second. How is Jesus calling the disciples, calling us just to have confidence in the things we don't see, helpful in this situation? 
The disciple who penned that true definition is in Hebrews 11 goes on to describe what that looked like in the lives of different ancient saints. Uh, they mention people like Noah. They mention people like Abraham and Sarah and Samuel and David, none of whom were people who blindly hoped for the best or foundlessly had confidence in God for their futures. Actually, the thing that ties all of those people together is that they had already heard. They had already seen. They had already experienced something of God. They were a people who had already experienced life with God, a God who made promises and kept promises. They'd seen it. They'd experienced it for themselves. And that, apparently, allowed them to keep hoping for the future. Faith then, the author of Hebrews says, is confidence in the unseen, but it's not foundless confidence. It's a confidence that is founded on their experiences already. It's not blind faith. It's faith with eyes to see what God has done and has revealed already. There's something about experiencing God in a moment, I think, and trusting him in the next. Great people of faith aren't just certain that God can do something, that God will do something, but are certain that God has already done something. That is what faith is. Faith is seeing, faith is hearing, faith is experiencing and recognizing what God already has done and that changing us to have the hope, the confidence for the things that we don't see, for the future that we don't yet recognize. And when we have that idea of faith in our minds, well, then all of a sudden Jesus' response starts to make sense, doesn't it? When he answers the disciples with those challenging words, where is your faith? Why are you afraid? We have to remember how much they've already seen, how much they've already experienced. Jesus had with his own lips already promised to love them and care for them and lead them into life. So, Jesus was saying that faith in their present darkness, faith in that very present storm, would have been to continue to hang on to the light that they'd already received. They come to Jesus and they ask this question, don't you care because we see you doing nothing? If I can paraphrase now really heavily what Jesus says, Jesus says, I've already told you, I've already shown you that I care. Does that make sense? Jesus comes to them and he uses this word faith and what he's doing is saying, you already know, I've already told you, I've already shown you. So let's think for a moment about how he responds to us then when we ask our question, when we observe God doing nothing and we ask the question, God, don't you care? We went on the boat, but I've mentioned some of the things in my own life for the last 12 months. I've given you hints and clues of the sorts of areas where perhaps you may have felt this without even asking the question yourself. And you come to me and you say, well, Sam, 
I don't know if we can really relate to the disciples and the answer that's given here because we've never met with Jesus face to face. We've never seen his miracles. We never heard from his very lips as he spoke to us the sorts of promises that he made the disciples. So what on earth can we say about faith then? What on earth can we say that will make us stand shoulder to shoulder with Noah and Abraham and David and Peter and James and John? who can have faith because they've experienced in their lives something of God's activity, of his promise-making and his promise-keeping. Well, I started off by suggesting that our gut response to how we demonstrate care or how someone demonstrates care to us is whether they do something, whether we see them act. I said that it could be words, or it could be actions. I think actually, even if someone speaks words, if there's no action to back it up, we'll quickly dismiss it. Words are a starting point, but what someone does really seals the deal. Well, let me just take you through some of the words that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel, not to the disciples, but to people in general, to you and to me and then consider some of the action. Jesus didn't just say to the 12 or, or to a larger group, but he said to anyone who was following these things, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whoever gives up everything to follow me will make it back 100-fold. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Those weren't just words spoken to a niche gang in Israel wandering around with their rabbi. Those were words which are extended as an offer to each and every one of us. And they are words which were in history backed up with action, weren't they? We are one week out from Easter when we celebrated, when we remembered in a special way Jesus acting once and definitively for all of those who would come and follow after him. You see, Jesus did back up everything he said by heading to the cross, didn't he? Dying in our place before crushing the darkest storms, which are sin, Satan, and death, and rising to new and everlasting life again. Jesus has acted. Jesus has died in our place and he has risen as our pioneer. And so we actually sit in a place and a time, though separated by, by distance, by years, by centuries and by, by millennia, where we can look back over all of that and we can know without a shadow of a doubt that yes, Jesus does care. Because he went to that cross. He submitted to that ridicule. He accepted our punishment in his own flesh. He succumbed to death and defeated it and rose to life again. Don't say, oh, well, the disciples, they got to see him heal a paralyzed man. They got to see him cast a demon out. They got to see him raise a little girl back to life. 
we sit in a time, in a place where we can look back and we can say, yes, Jesus has lived and died and risen to life again. He has acted. He has backed up those words of love and care and concern. He has kept his promises. We can know without a shadow of a doubt, Easter shows us this so clearly that he does love us. So faith for you and for for me then is this. Faith is being certain of that. And because we are certain of that, because we can know that Jesus lived and died and rose again, we are certain of what will come. We can have confidence and hope in the unseen action that is still to be taken. Faith is trusting in between those two things. The things that we can know with confidence and certainty and the things which that confident one has promised us will happen in the future. What terrifies us may be trivial to Jesus in the story. I don't know if you noticed that. It's, it's just a word. The thing that grips them with fear, Jesus just says, shush, hush down for a moment. There's an in, in, entire another sermon there about the power of Jesus, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard that one before. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. So don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't assume that Jesus is just going to ignore it because it's something that's simple to him either. But be willing for there to be waiting. Waiting in order to receive a response. Be willing for the response to be happening outside of your field of vision. Unnoticed action taking place. But don't go down the path, don't go down the road that says to you that God, that Jesus doesn't care, that he doesn't love. The good news for us all is this, that whatever circumstances we are in today, we can confidently come to Jesus with the question, don't you care and know that Jesus' answer is, you know that I care. I've proven that to you, now trust me that I can care for you through all of it. Um, my mate Gareth, he did die, it's terribly sad, less than 12 months after his mother had died. What can I say? From my perspective, there was no action. Um, my nephew was born uh, without a diaphragm. Amazingly, I would say miraculously, he's four months and a bit old now and he, he's a beautiful, bouncing, bonny boy. They sewed up the hole. I think, I'm not sure, I think he's still only got one lung and a three quarters of a heart or what have you, but he's doing great. And I'd say that's a miracle. My church, do you know what? It's great that you guys are starting to get back together and we had a couple of weeks together over Easter. I don't know what the future holds in that situation. But in all three circumstances, I know, I know that God cares, that God loves and God is doing something. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, thank you for being a caring God, an acting God, a powerful God. 
And Lord, I thank you that you are everything we need in Jesus. Confess, Lord, I'd rather it if life was life without storm clouds gathering. Lord, we don't like it when our world gets hard, when our world gets dark, when our world gets scary. But this is the testimony of the Scripture, this is the testimony of the saints through the ages that the light of the world has come and the darkness could not overcome it. Lord, we know that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again in our place. So I pray for each and every one of us this morning, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, give us faith to cling that, faith to cling to that which we know so certainly. In the midst of navigating things which we simply do not understand. Lord, let that faith build, let it bubble up in us, a faith and a confidence in what you most certainly will do because of what you have done. Lord, help us to know your love, your care, your concern, and for that to ring loud and true in our hearts when we hurt, when we fear, when we come and we ask for the hundredth time, don't you care? Help us to see, help us to know that you do. Help us not to need your response, but in a sense to offer the response ourselves. Yes, you do care. Unquestionably, you care for us. You have acted, you will act, and you always are acting. We ask for that, Lord, because we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.